Matthew chapter 24, I'm going to read verses 32 to 35. Matthew 24, verses 32 to 35. And as I'm preaching, you're probably going to wonder why me and Ben are preaching the same sermon two times in a row. But it's good. It's, it, it confirms uh, what, what I think the Lord would have us to hear today when, when this type of thing happens. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading of your Word as you have so far and continue to speak to us and teach us as a congregation. I pray that we would grow and learn from your Word. Lord, help us to trust your Word and to obey your Word because it is your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. I've said several times in recent days that we live in a time and a place where it's relatively easy to convince yourself and also to convince others that you are a Christian. A general, surface-level, public portrayal of a moderate, what we might call Judeo-Christian ethic is not yet being treated with or by or with hostility by most people. In many places around the world, what we would consider a Christian lifestyle is uncommon, even illegal, but here in the American South, even if people disagree with you, they will still at least give a hat tip to um, theism. They will at least applaud integrity. A, a boss man will at least admit that he appreciates honesty within his workers. It, it's easy to be, in that sense, a, quote, Christian. And I'm putting scare quotes around that because it could go either way. A, a, a genuine Christian or even a false professor. Maybe it would be easier to say, it, or better to say, it, it's easy to be Christian in, in the way that our society or our culture uses that term. Even the notion of subjective truth has helped us in this regard. We, who might be considered on the fringe of conservative, reformed Christianity, can be looked at and even noted by a lot of people as to our insanity because we believe the Bible is the Word of God and we believe He means what He says and, and so on and so forth. But at least people in our culture will say, well, to each his own, and they'll walk away at this point. What I'm saying is they're not trying to kill us yet. It's not illegal to worship publicly yet. It's not illegal to educate our children at home yet. It's not illegal to preach or evangelize in the public square yet. 
And it's with that in, in mind that I say it's easy to be a Christian in our culture. True Christians and false professors alike are sufficiently able to maintain that profession in public and they're not afraid to be killed. We're not afraid that our property is going to be taken away from us yet. In that sense, it's easy to be a Christian in our society. The question that I want to put to you today is, what is going to happen when all of that changes? What are we going to do at that point? Or more specifically, what are you going to do when everything I just described is the opposite and it's not easy to be a Christian? What are you going to do when this place and the time in which we live is no longer unsafe? Or is no longer safe? It, it becomes an unsafe environment. What will you do when all of the false professors have been weeded out through tribulation and affliction and suffering and all that's left is the, the lunatic fringe, the, the Christian extremists. But, but by that point, it's just us. And we're just called the Christians. You've got the Christians and then you've got the non-Christians. What will you do then when it becomes hard to be a Christian? And are you living in such a way now that shows that you're going to be able to stand against the onslaught of attacks then. I would say some of you are doing very well. And I hope that you keep it up. I hope that you're able to maintain that course. Others of you, I wonder, some of the decisions and the things that you do with your life make me wonder if I'm just watching the foreshadowings of apostasy by the way you live. But it's easy right now. What will you do when it's hard to be a Christian? Remember that in this chapter, Matthew 24, our Lord is speaking to His disciples, and our Lord knows full well, and He's even explaining to them that the time in which they live and the place in which they live is about to become very turbulent. It's going to get a lot harder. He's given them warning after warning. He's explained to them what they should expect to see. He's even explained the great triumph of His kingdom. And now in these verses that I've read, verses 32 to 35, He's giving sort of like an intermission, an intermission that has some recapitulation in it. He's concluding some of what He's already said while He's also looking forward to the next topic. In these verses, He gives a simple parable encouraging their continued discernment he gives a relevant reminder, girding up their minds with expectancy. And he concludes all of it with an eternal reality that holds together the entire discourse, which will in turn give these men great hope and great comfort as they move forward. In essence, what he's giving these men is what they are going to need when it becomes hard to be a Christian. This is what they need to hear. Notice first a simple parable. In verses 32 and 33, a simple parable. Our Lord has already warned these men of the various things that will take place that are not to be mistaken as the end. He's warned them of false Christs who will come that are not to be mistaken as the true Christ. He's described for them a kingdom and a king that are not to be mistaken when men say, look in the inner room or look out in the wilderness. In other words, He's given them, He's laid out for them truth and falsehood. Truth and falsehood. Here's the real and here's the false. 
And this kind of polemic teaching implies he's assuming that they are going to be constantly on guard watching all around them. And so when they see the false, they'll say, that's false, and they won't be led astray. And when they see the truth, they'll say, that's the truth, and they can receive truth. In verses 32 and 33, he gives a simple parable that reinforces that same watchfulness. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. The word parable is in the original. It does say, learn this from the parable of the fig tree. What he's saying is, the following parable is going to help you know what to do with everything I've just said. Here's the purpose of the parable. Learn from the fig tree. And here's the parable itself. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Plants of all kinds do this. We, we get the analogy. It's, it's basic. I could say to us, when you begin to see the dogwood trees put out their sprouts and turn white or pink, you know summer is near. Now you might say, wait a second, I thought that was spring. It is spring. But you know summer's coming. You, you don't see the dogwoods bloom and say, well, it's going to be winter before long. You say summer is near. It's that simple. When you see this, you know that that is on the horizon. And so then he applies it. So also, when you see all these things, know that he is near at the very gates. Our Lord has described the tumult that is going to follow his ascension leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. He's described the continued growth of his kingdom that has been established but yet will continue to grow. And yet remember the focus is not on the specific events in the timeline but rather the broader redemptive historical work that Christ is doing. One empire, one age, the Jewish age is coming to an end and the kingdom of Christ is being established. The church is being built. And so when he says, when you see all these things, that doesn't mean or need to be taken exhaustive. As in, as soon as all of this is finished and you see every bit of it before your very eyes. If that were the case, then the rest of the, the teaching doesn't make any sense because it would all be done. You see, what he's saying is... When you see the things I've described taking place, and notice how he finishes, you know that he is near at the very gates. The ESV says you know that he is near. Literally, it should read you know that it is near. The word is it. The question we ask then is what is it? Luke helps us here. Luke 21, 31. Luke puts it this way, so also... When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now that makes sense in the discourse. As you're watching all of this, you know God's kingdom is being established on the earth. The reign of Christ is coming and being set up on the earth. And the phrase, at the very gates, again when we hear gates, and we've just heard all of this about Jerusalem, that, that is sort of an interpreter's license there. This word gates is almost always translated doors or the door in the New Testament. So it, it can be read, he's at the door. It's simply a Jewish way of saying he's close, he's near, it is near. Or, as Christ has preached from the very beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's right before you. 
And so in the same way that the visible buds of the fig tree let you know that something is on the horizon, so also he's saying to his disciples, as you begin to watch all of this play out before your eyes, you know the kingdom is here. The kingdom is being established. Christ is king. As they watch, they will know Christ is king. That's the parable. Secondly, we see a relevant reminder. In verse 34, a relevant reminder. In verse 8, he had said, or used the analogy of birth pains. In verse 8, he said, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now we all know, hopefully, some of us with more, um, some of us know better than others, birth pains are not the birth. And the beginning of the birth pains are not the extremity of the birth pains. The beginning of the birth pains let you know something's on the horizon, something good is coming, but we're not there yet. And as a matter of fact, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. No woman has ever said, finally, my birth pains are here at whenever those start. Four months, five months, seven months. Whenever you start to feel those early contractions, no woman says, finally. When you feel the birth pains, you're reminded a baby is coming. It's, it could be a couple months out. It could be two hours out. A baby is coming. But it's not here yet. The birth pains are not the point. The analogy of the birth pains was to set in their minds imminence, expectancy. It's on the horizon. It's near. And that's the exact same thing he's doing here in verse 34. He says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now we've heard that time frame before. This generation, a period of 30 to 40 years... The exact same phrase he used in 2336, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So it's, it's relevant to them. This generation. And here's the reminder. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things, again, the same as it was in verse 33, everything he's been describing, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And we don't have to read that as exhaustive. It's inclusive. Everything he's described, the destruction of Jerusalem, the establishment of the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom, and the building of the church, this generation, he's saying, is going to live and see these things before your very eyes. And so we Lord, our Lord reminds them of the same thing he said in chapter 23, the then living generation would see those events unfold before their eyes. They would be able to see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. As Jesus had said earlier, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. That didn't mean His second coming is full coming in glory and power, but they would be able to see the establishment of the kingdom in their lifetime. And He's reminding them of the imminence of these events to produce in them expectancy. When you see this, you know that it's near. It's at hand. It's right around the corner. This generation will be able to see these things. And then thirdly, he gives them an eternal reality. An eternal 
reality. If you've ever, or if you ever, go hiking deep into the Blue Ridge Mountains and you, your foot slides off the edge of a rock and you fall, plummet, and you break your leg, one of the things you're going to have to do before you start making your way out is put on a splint. You should. You should put on a splint. Now, a splint is not the, the final fix. You're not going to go home and say, good, got my splint. The splint is pretty much anything you can find, even two sticks, tied to the sides of your leg to, keep, to hold everything together, to keep from um, experiencing more damage until you get out of the woods. It's a splint. It's just holding everything together. And that's what is happening in verse 35. Again, times are about to get tough. For these disciples, the birth pains are about to set in. Our Lord knows they have a difficult trek ahead of them, far more difficult than they even understand. Persecution, famine, pestilence, wars are going to plague their nation. Their faith is about to be shaken to its very bedrock as they watch their Messiah hang from a cross. He's given them words of warning. He's given them words of preparation. And now he concludes this little intermission with a truth that will hold their faith together like a splint. It's going to give them comfort. It's going to give them hope moving forward. Again, more hope and more comfort than they even know at this point. Notice what he says. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. He begins with a positive truth. Heaven and earth will pass away. That is, the natural world, the created order, will pass away. It will be done away with. It will not stay the way it is. And then he gives them a negative truth. But my words will not pass away. In contrast to what has been created, the words of Christ are firmly fixed and they will not go away. They are sure. They are immovable. Now let's ask of, of the text, what is he doing in this phrase? What's he trying to, to convey to these men? Well, he uses a common comparison. That of the mutability of the creature, the created order, over against the immutability of the Word of God. We've already heard it. Isaiah 40 and verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There in Isaiah, the grass and the flower are like the flesh. They're, he's describing, comparing man to flowers. Just like flowers, your flesh is going to pass away. It's not going to stand. At the same time, the truth is still the same with the grass and with the flowers. They will wither. They will fade. All of the created order will fade. It will be done away with, but the word of our God will stand forever. Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 1. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He's comparing everything created versus everything Uncreated, the uncreated, immutable Word of God. Christ simply shortens it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But I hope you notice that little twist that he puts on it. 
Isaiah said, the word of our God. Peter said, the word of the Lord. Christ says, my words. My words will not pass away. You see, Christ takes this ancient truth about the word of the living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the just and gracious creator and sustainer of all things who spoke it into existence and then he upholds it by the word of his power and he makes that claim about the words of that God, his claim. My words will not pass away. He's affirming very clearly his deity, his oneness with God. Christ's words are God's words. God's word is Christ's words. Isaiah spoke of the Christ. Peter spoke of the Christ. When the psalmist wrote, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, he was speaking of Christ. Case found maybe his first... Uh, red letter Bible yesterday and he was explaining to the children last night you know what color are these words red what color are these words black do you know I explained it to him and, and Case just looked at me like dumbfounded what do you mean Jesus is God it's, it's all God's word though creation will someday pass away the words of Christ will never pass away He's given these men something to hold on to, something to cling to, ballast. We, sing, we have the song that has the word ballast in it. He's giving them ballast, weight for their souls. He's casting the anchor of their faith deep into the waters of the nature of divine revelation. In other words, don't just take my word for it because I said it, but because it is God's word. Everything else around you is going to shift you're going to be secure because this is God's Word. And so in light of fearful uncertainty, our Lord assures these men with a truth that they are familiar with, although now with a new point of view. He's saying God's Word is eternal and unchanging. I'm that God. I have spoken. You can hang your hopes and your fears on my unchanging Word. For the disciple of Christ who looks into the future with even the slightest hint of unknowing, there is one place ordained by God to be the all-sufficient source of hope and comfort, and that is the Word of God. We read in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect. It's sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true. What he's saying is you can lean on the Word of God. Why? Because it is the Word of God. Psalm 119. We, we, we go to that chapter a lot. The, the great chapter about all about the Word of God, all about divine revelation. We might ask of that chapter, how, how can I know how to live and how to do, how to carry myself in the world in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. How do I know that when I walk out the door and go wherever I'm going to go tomorrow that I'm not living in open, flagrant sin? How am I supposed to know? A lot of people in the world think that they can define sin. 
If you point out a sin to them and they'll say, well, how can you call that sin? Like they have a standard. They just don't want your standard. They want their standard. Or they don't want God's standard. They want their standard. How do we know? As Christians, how do we know what sin is? And that we're not living in open sin every single day. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It's in the word. Verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do I know how to live in such a way that pleases God? You better go to the word. Any other standard is a shaky standard, is a shaky foundation. What do I do when I'm at the very depths of sorrow in my soul? Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Go to the word. Where can I find comfort in times of affliction? Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. What about when all hope is gone? When, when there is no hope around to be found? Verse 114 says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. See, for the disciple of Christ who looks into the future with even the slightest hint of unknowing, there is only one place ordained by God to be the all-sufficient source of hope and comfort, and it is the Word of God. That is the disciple of Christ. If you're not a Christian, you should not take comfort in any promise in the Scriptures given to the people of God except... Of all who will come to me, I've cast out none. I've lost none. If you will come to me, Christ said, then I'll save you. The promises of salvation, trust in those. But these, these promises to the blessed man, the one, the, those who lean upon the Word of God, the promises given to the people of God, they're for the disciples of Christ. And they're for those disciples who look into the future with the slightest hint of unknowing. Is there anyone here who could say... When I look into the future, I have a little bit of unknowing, of uncertainty. Anybody? We had a couple nods. Okay, I, hopefully. So the answer is yes. Everybody's supposed to say yes. That's the answer. N none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. We all have at least the slightest hint of uncertainty. If you're a Christian and you have even the slightest hint of uncertainty... There is one place you can go, ordained by God Himself, to be the all-sufficient source of comfort and hope. One place. And that's the Word of God. This is why later, Jesus gets closer to the cross. He knows what His disciples are about to undergo. He knows that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep are going to scatter. He knows great trials are going to come upon them. And He says, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. He knew that His words were life and power. He knew that His words were perfect, sure, right, pure, and true. He knew that when it became hard to be a Christian, they're going to need His words. Why? Why? Because they're God's words. 
for the disciple of Christ who looks into the future with even the slightest hint of unknowing, there is one place ordained by God to be the all-sufficient source of hope and comfort, and it is the Word of God. So I ask again, what will you do when it's hard to be a Christian? In light of the fearful uncertainty of the days ahead, our Lord assures us with a truth that I'm sure we were all familiar with, except hopefully with a new, fresh wind of the Spirit upon it. God's Word is eternal and unchanging. You can hang your hopes and your fears on God's unchanging Word. Trust in the only sufficient source. Trust the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. Why? Because mom and dad did it? Because mamma and papa did it? No. Because it is the Word of God. The Word of God gives guidance and instruction and wisdom to the people of God. It is sufficient to equip you for every good work. But you must trust it and you must obey it because it is the Word of God. You see, there are three levels there. You've got to trust it. And you've got to obey it, but the authority's got to be not because somebody else told me to, but because of what it is, because it is the Word of God. So if you want comfort, you want peace, you want certainty about the future, about decisions that you must make, where a lot of young families make a lot of big decisions. You want comfort, you want hope, you want certainty, then go to the one all-sufficient source. Now, some of you object. And you say, well, I thought Christ was the only all-sufficient source. And I would say you're right. And it is the Scriptures that speak of Christ. It is the Scriptures that give us Christ. They testify to His power and His glory, His work of redemption, His future return. It's the Scriptures where we go to find out how lovely He is, to get what we need by the Spirit to behold Him by faith. Run to the Scriptures... Trust the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. Now when you're walking by faith and walking in obedience, you have peace and you have comfort that nothing else can provide. If you're trusting the Word of God and obeying the Word of God, you won't worry about the future or some event or some decision that you have to make. Some people worry. A lot about everything. Why? Because they're not walking in faith. They're not walking in obedience. If you're not walking in faith, if you're not walking in obedience to the Word of God, you should only fear. You should be terrified. The only reason that you should fear is if there's the slightest hint in your mind that maybe you've not found the mind of Christ in the Scriptures to inform your decisions and your steps. And if you've not found it, then you should only fear. See, here's the problem. You want a middle ground. This is the problem. You want a middle ground. You want your way here, and then you want to plead for God's help over here. You want to say, well, I'm going to go my own way when it comes to my job, but then I'm going to beg and plead for God to guide me when it comes to buying a house. And you want some certainty about that. We want God to be sovereign when everybody's sick, but we don't want God to be sovereign when everything's fine and we can walk on our own two feet. 
Trust the Word of God. Obey the Word of God because it is the Word of God. Even when it peer, appears untenable, when it appears unlikely, when it appears unhelpful, when it is unpopular, when it is unproductive or counterproductive, when prospects are grim, when you can't see how it's going to work. And we've all been there, haven't we? If you've had another kid on the way, if you've had two incomes and you've talked about coming down to one income so that your wife can raise the children in the household, you've thought, you've looked at the numbers and you've said, I don't see how it's going to work. The numbers don't add up. But what do you do? You trust the Word of God and you obey the Word of God. And, and, and well, when I'm finished, I can give time for testimonies for everyone to come and line up and give testimonies to all of the times God's not proven Himself faithful since trusting and obeying. That'll be a short line. Because He's always faithful if you will trust the Word of God and obey the Word of God. To trust the Word of God is to be completely given over to the promises, the warnings, the wisdom that are found in it as the objective eternal reality by which the universe and even your life is governed. That's trust. If you trust the Word of God, that means you don't know another way except the Word of God. You, you give yourself to no contrary word. You don't fear anything the world says to fear if God has not said fear it. You're truly convinced what God calls wisdom is wisdom. And what God calls foolish is foolish. That wisdom leads to blessing and foolishness leads to cursing. You're convinced of that. But here's what we do. We try to reason with our own hearts. We say, well, the Bible says I need to be wise. You know, you've got to be wise. The Bible says I've got to be wise. And we trail off there, dot, dot, dot. We end our quotation marks and then we add in our words. The Bible says I have to be wise and so I need to do A, B, or C. Even though you know good and well A, B, or C contradict what the Word of God teaches elsewhere. You see, that's your heart trying to reason with you. That's a desperately sick heart trying to reason where it cannot reason. You want to take the easy route and still maintain the semblance of a Christian. You know what that's called? Whenever you say, well, God says I have to be wise or I have to be a steward, and then we fill in the rest of our actions with worldly wisdom, you know what? That's, that's called taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's called using God, the name of God the Almighty, to fulfill your selfish lusts rather than clinging to His Word when it's hard. It's a sin. God's wisdom says, trust and obey. Even when it appears untenable, unlikely, when prospects are grim, when you can't see how it's going to work, you trust and obey. To trust is to rest in God's promises as your only hope. It's to heed God's warnings as if your eternity depended upon it. And eternity starts this afternoon. Trust the Word of God and obey the Word of God. To obey the Word of God is to have every aspect of your life brought in submission to and carried out in perfect conformity to every command, every prohibition, and every godly example found in the Scriptures. To obey the Word of God is to start with the Bible, then act. 
Not act and then come back to the Bible. It's to begin with positive precept. God has given me my orders. And then do. And then as you are doing and you run into questionable ways or options, bring every one of them back to be measured at the bar of Holy Scripture before acting. To obey the Word of God is to know no other way of life except that which is laid out in clear didactic texts or implied by moral and ethical example. Obey the Word of God. Trust the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. And here's our motivation. Because it is the Word of God. Again, Christ doesn't just say take... Take this and leave it. He, he didn't have to include verse 35. But he does to give them the motivation. He's rooting everything he's said. He's rooting all of their comfort and all of their hope in the nature of divine revelation. My word shall not pass away. Wink, wink. Isaiah 40 verse 8. God's words are Christ's words. Christ's words are God's words. He's rooting it in the divine mandate of Scripture. He's rooting it in what the Scripture is, God's Word. Obey the Word, or trust the Word of God. Obey the Word of God because it is the Word of God. Now, several weeks ago we went through some of our presuppositions, our, our hermeneutical presuppositions. This is another one. Paul states it very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, when he says that they were thanking God for the Thessalonian Christians because when they received the Word of God which they had heard from the apostles, they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Hey, they could have obeyed every one of Paul's words and been obedient to everything Paul said and said, well, we're doing it. Why? Well, Paul said to. But he says, no, I'm thinking God because when you heard it, you received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. It's because it is the Word of God that we trust it and obey it. And so we must, if we're going to have this proper motivation, we have to read the Word of God and receive it as commands, precepts, instructions, guidance, prohibitions from God to you. From God. It, receive it as the Word of God. Not just tradition. Not just because somebody told me to. Receive it as the words of God. Now that sounds so obvious, does it not? Well, we confess that. We believe that. We, we covered that, that paragraph in the confession. But do we actually believe it? Do we actually believe that this book that we hopefully are making the attempt to trust and obey, are we doing it because it's the word of God? That's the question. What's your motivation I want you to examine yourself, and I'm going to give you two symptoms to consider that I think will characterize those who do not really believe the Bible is the Word of God. Now, they might obey every bit of it, but this could also be true that even in their obedience, they're not obeying because, of the, because it's the Word of God. The first one is a failure in reading. A failure in reading. That is not reading at all, that is reading very little, or that is reading with inconsistency. I would say if you're not reading the Bible at all, if you're reading very little of the Bible, or you're reading the Bible with inconsistency, you don't believe it's the Word of God. 
Now, as I meet with you all, I very often hear things like this. Well, I've been a little inconsistent. I've gotten out of my routine. I don't have a consistent schedule set down. Pray for me that I'll be more diligent in reading every day. Now, I'm not, I don't, no, I'm not demanding perfection. We're not demanding perfection or even expecting perfection from anyone. But when I hear these things over and over and over, it means that there's probably failures in reading. Some are not reading at all. Some are reading very little. And some are reading with inconsistency. Now imagine that tomorrow you are diagnosed with cancer and you've got a year to live. And the doctor says you're going to die in 365 days, but there's one cure that's 100% effective. Take this chemotherapy. It's 100% effective. You will be healed. The problem is you have to take it once a month for the next six months. Now imagine then that you went about your business and you didn't take the chemotherapy at all. You never went back. I'm not going to argue about the, the pros and cons of chemotherapy, whether it's good or bad. Let's just assume that it's good at this point. You, you never go back to the doctor. Let's assume you go back, but when you go back and they begin to apply the treatment, you break off about halfway through and you just go home. I've had enough. I'm good. Or you go with some inconsistency. Maybe you go once every other month for the next six months. Now, what would that tell me, the way that your actions, what would that tell me you believe about the effectiveness of chemotherapy? What would that tell me you believe about your life? You, the care that you have about whether you're alive next year or not? If you believe the Bible is just a collection of quaint stories and cute little sayings that are meant to provoke thought, then I have no problem understanding why you would read not at all why you would read very little or why you would read inconsistently. That makes sense. But if you believe the Bible is the word of the living God, there is no excuse, no excuse for failures in reading. If you believe that to obey the word of God means to start with it and then act, how can you even go about your day without reading? How can you step your foot out the door without being in the word of God? And, and not? how do you know you're not walking in flagrant sin everywhere? How do you know? If you believe that the Word of God is the only sufficient source of hope and comfort, how can you step out your door without reading it? How do you know you're not just, that everything's not going to crumble? The question is, is the Bible the Word of God? That's the question. Is it the Word of God? Another lesson I taught my children this week. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter. We can all confess. Stand up, raise our hands. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. It doesn't matter. It matters what you do. What you do is what matters, not what you say. Is the Bible the Word of God? I can ask you and I can get you to tell me what you believe, or I can look at your life and I can tell you what you believe. The Scriptures tell you how to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. They give joy in times of sorrow, comfort in affliction, hope in despair. They provide solid footing for your faith. Why? Because they are the words of God. If you believe all that, how can you go without reading? How can you live on a diet of crumbs? How can you go day after day with no consistency, squeezing in a little bit of word 
the words of life where it's convenient. Where there is failure in reading, it is evident, regardless of your confession, that you do not believe the Bible is the life-giving Word of God. You don't receive it as the Word of God. If you received it as the Word of God, it would have a place of priority and prominence in your life. Examine yourself. What do your actions say? Not, not your confession, your actions. Failure in reading. The second one, the second symptom that I think gives evidence that you do not believe the Bible is the Word of God is a lack of prayer. A lack of prayer. Now again, I'm not expecting perfection. I just want you to examine yourselves. Some of you are very good at reading. Very good. Very consistent. But again, I regularly hear things like this. Well, I need to grow in prayer. I need to have more consistent prayer times. I don't pray like I should. In other words, I'm just guessing that we as a congregation have an abundance of reading with little prayer. That shows that your reading is not being accompanied by the Holy Spirit impressing upon your heart the truth of divine mandate. Now let me explain what that means. The Word of God comes with mandate. It comes with commands, expectations, directions, prohibitions. The Word of God comes with an ought. Why? Because it's the Word of God. It demands something. And so to receive it as what it really is, the Word of God, is to receive divine mandate with regard to your life. It is to receive your marching orders. When you read the Scriptures as a Christian, when the Holy Spirit waters that seed, it is to hear from God, this is how you are to live today. This is how you are to be today. This is to how you are to think. When you realize that the divine mandate on your life is contrary to your nature in Adam. It's contrary to your society as a whole. You realize those decisions that you would normally just make, just go with it. Those people that you would normally just associate with. Those places that you would normally just go without even questioning. You realize all of that's no longer normal for you because the divine mandate says to do something else. They're contrary to your orders. And so you begin to realize the, the difficulty of your dual citizenship, living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven while also living on this earth. You realize the, 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 to live in this world as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven puts a strain on a lot of things that for most people are not strained. They have no difficulty whatsoever. And so when you begin to read the Word of God and it's accompanied by the Spirit, you realize that job you want to take it demands time God's already taken for Himself. God's already claimed. That car that you feel like you need, well, that's going to require money that God owns, not you. That lifestyle that you're chasing, well, that won't allow me to be focused on the kingdom as I should. Hard to make decisions have not yet received their clearance from the Lord, and so I can't act. Now, if the Bible is nothing more than quaint stories and cute little sayings, then none of these are going to be a problem. You're never going to have an issue here. 
If you've decided already where you're going to work, where you're going to live, what you're going to drive, how you're going to live, all of the decisions you're going to make, and God is just going to have to submit to your prerogative, then all of these issues are easy for you. Just do what you want. Life will be a breeze and you'll never have to pray. You just live. But when you give yourself to the study of the Scriptures as the rule of life and as what they really are, the Word of God that comes with divine mandate, and then you turn and look at your life, events on the horizon, decisions you have to make, plans you have to keep, and you've already determined, I will not budge until I hear a word from my Maker, you're going to learn to pray real quick. Because stuff comes. The calendar's not going to slow down. It keeps coming. Life keeps coming. See, the reason we don't know how to pray is because we've already got our minds made up. You don't know how to tarry in the night watch in prayer because you've already decided what you're going to do tomorrow. And God's just going to have to deal with it. You're going to take the job, demand that God be okay with it. You're going to do this or that, spend this or that, live here or there, have this life or that life. Ask a, say the prayer, say the blessing before you eat, hang up a little God bless our home thing in the house, and, and, and act as though God is your bellhop. We want God to be sovereign after we've made a mess and not before we act. You see, He gives mandates, do this. But if you do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, you never learn how to pray. And that's why you don't know how to pray. Where you have an abundance of Bible reading and Bible knowledge and little prayer, you have a people who have not yet understood the necessity laid upon them by the Scriptures as the Word of God. So examine yourself. Now you might object again. You don't understand. I've got this thing going on tomorrow. I mean, I've already told people... The scriptures, as we've seen this morning from the psalm, are replete with references to waiting upon the Lord. Are you above waiting upon the Lord? Again, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you do. Wait upon the Lord. Prove that you know how to wait upon the Lord. Waiting upon the Lord is a means of sanctifying grace. When we begin to value sanctification over that next life advance, that next step up, you're going to learn how to wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord and pray. It's only when we realize the great pressure upon us and the need that we have of God to guide us that we really pray. The reason you can't pray is because you've not, you, you've not felt that yet. Jesus could have slept like most of you do, like a baby, the night before he chose his 12 disciples. If he would have just said, you know what, Father, it's, I've, I've worked all day, I'm tired. Um, first 12 guys that come, I'm going to pick them. I know you're sovereign. I'm going to pick them, and you do with them as you please. You use them. Lord, Father, I know that you've decreed the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. I know it, and so I'm just going to pick the first 12 guys because I know you can use anybody. He would have slept like a baby, but he didn't. He prayed all night about choosing those men. The Christian life is often one of praying and waiting upon the Lord. 
The reason you struggle so much with prayer, even though you read your Bible often, is because you don't realize the great demands that it makes on your life and the complete inability you have to carry out any of it apart from God's sustaining hand. In other words, you don't read God's Word as God's Word to you. You read it as quaint stories, cute little sayings written to somebody else. But for me, I'm going to do what I want to. Nobody has to teach baby birds. Listen, you guys just got here, just out of the shell. Just explain to you. When you're hungry, start chirping, and mama's going to know. Nobody has to explain that to them. They're hungry. All they, all they feel is hungry. I just got to have it. I can't fly. I don't know what this world is. I know I got to have something. And so they chirp, and they chirp, and they chirp, and they chirp. That's how we should be. That's, that's prayer. Prayer is the, the, the sweat of the soul. It is the, 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 the infant cry of the believer. Pray. But if you've already determined, you've already decided, I'm going to live how I want to live, regardless of what the Bible says, you don't need to pray. Just live. Whenever you make a mess of things, you'll pray. But that's what we don't, why we don't pray. So I would say failures at reading and failures in prayer are evidences that we really don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. And so we might be trusting it, and we might, we might be obeying it, but we're not doing it for the right reasons. We're not doing it because it's the Word of God. There's one place ordained by God to be the all-sufficient source of hope and comfort, and it is the Word of God. And if there is to be any comfort found in it, it has to be trusted and obeyed as the Word of God. When you're walking in humble, faithful obedience to the Word of God, you will never need to fear. When it becomes hard to be a Christian, trust the Word of God, obey the Word of God. For Christ said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And this is exactly what we see modeled in the Garden of Gethsemane, is it not? A man so burdened with the weight of the things that must take place, so constrained by what he knows must take place, what has been written of him in the Scriptures, constrained by the Word of God, that he prayed with such vigor that he sweat drops of blood. Now, he could have very well said, you know what, guys? Um, the Bible tells me to be wise and to be a good steward of my time, and to be a good steward of my body. And, well, you all know Judas knows where we pray, so let's go somewhere else and pray tonight. Because i got to be a good steward. i got to be wise with my stuff. But he didn't. He trusted, and he obeyed. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He accepted the divine mandate. He realized the necessity laid upon him. He recognized the cup that he was about to drink. And he prayed. He just prayed. And then he stood up. And he secured our redemption. He obeyed. As we consider the Lord's table, I hope the sufferings of Christ laid aside the ease and comfort with which most of us float through this life will weigh heavy on your conscience as you consider this cup and this bread. Take a minute.
consider these things and then we'll come to the Lord's table.